Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We don't like being confronted with truth, but when that truth is the whole truth, one that includes love and grace, then truth brings life. Lead teacher Jeff Norris finishes the series Exodus, Provision in the Wilderness, with the second part of this sermon entitled, The Lord, Our Loving Lawgiver which covers Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 17, and Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 40. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. And now, Lord, uh, would you remind us that what we're about to do is no small thing as we open the living Word of God, the holy and errant infallible Word of God. May you bless it. Um, would you soften our hearts and press deep into our hearts the truths of your word? Would you use me, use me as your mouthpiece? Lord, may I be your vessel into your glory. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. We're moving back into, we're doing part two of Exodus chapter 20. We've been in uh, really for two years now, not consecutively, but uh, a little bit last fall, we did the first 15 chapters of Exodus. Then this fall, we've been doing chapters 16 through 20. Next fall, we'll do part three of Exodus by doing a deep dive into the 10 commandments, and then we'll go forward from there. But over the course of these next, uh, however many years it takes, we will have worked our way through the entire book of Exodus. And so we're in part two of chapter 20, where God gives the 10 commandments. We're calling it, uh, the name of this sermon is The Lord, Our Loving Lawgiver. Last week, we talked about what that means to love God and therefore love his law. This week, we're going to continue thinking about that very same theme, but with a little bit of a different wrinkle and different emphasis. And as I think about this week, a setup for this week is something that takes me back to um, the early days of what I think has been one of the greatest shows ever created. Rachel and I never missed an episode. Uh, Probably the first maybe 12, 13, 14 seasons that it was on. We've lost a little bit of interest these last few years, but man, those first, that first decade or so, we were glued every time the original great singing show came on American Idol. It's awesome. Now let me, let me confess something. With American Idol, now you may be a voice fan or, or uh, Matt, the masked singer fan. If you are, then you know, we'll pray for you. That's a weird show. Um, <laughs> there was one for a little while that was a country one. I don't remember the name of it, but the one, the original greatest one was American Idol. And in those early years, I'll confess to you, what drew me in first, I can remember it was 2003, that first season, we were living in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, Kelly Clarkston won the show, but I didn't get drawn in by her or anybody else. I was drawn in because in those early years, they would always show the auditions, not just the good ones. And I don't know what it says about me, but I love the bad ones. (laughs) I just thought it was great TV, you know? And and again, there's something down in there that I probably need to mine the depths of my heart and confess how much joy I get out of someone else's humiliation. Because if you know the show, what would happen is they would always have uh, these people that would come in and audition who thought they were really good. They had people in their lives who loved them, who told them they were good singers. And then they would get in front of the judges, in front of Simon Cowell and Paula Abdul, Randy Jackson, and whoever the fourth one would be, it was rotating. And they would sing, or kind of. And they would just oh my goodness, Simon was ruthless. 
And they, they would just destroy this person trying out. And it was, it was just in a really sadistic way funny. And, and I was drawn in by this. Now, I did feel bad for them because I thought, oh my goodness, they were so deceived. They thought they were good, but they weren't. And, and the response was always one of two responses. When Simon and the others would really just say, hey, you're horrible. You're not good. Who told you you could sing? They would either respond with, oh, really? Okay, and they would hear it. They would listen and they would go, wow, okay, well, this hurts, but now I know the truth. Or they would respond with defiance and push back. Who are you? You don't know what you're talking about. I am good. Now there's been, since then, those early years, there've been, you know, studies or reports that have come out that have said, you know, hey, they paid people to go in there and make fools of themselves. And it was all set up. I don't really care. It was great TV. Um, (laughs) But there were probably some there were probably some who that was genuine. They really thought they were good. And, and so they're in the audition room and the truth of the judges was actually a gift to them because they were exposed for what they really were. Now I think about how this might play out spiritually. And I think about what's true of humanity according to the scriptures. And according to God's word, God makes no bones about who we are. And he shows us who we are through the gift of the law. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever thought of it that way, have ever thought, hey, the law of God is a gift. It's a gift to me. And it's a gift as we talked last week, first and foremost, because it shows us the heart of God. It reveals to us who he is. It reveals to us his standard. But in doing so, it's also a gift to us, and we probably wouldn't see it as a gift, but it is a gift to us in that it shows us who we are. And it shows us how deceived we are as to who we really are. It exposes us. There is a great gift in being laid bare because then we don't have to pretend anymore. We're not functioning in life under false pretenses that we've somehow believed, but we are actually believing the truth about who we are. And the scriptures are very clear on this. And if you've been at Perimeter for any length of time, you know we've talked about this a lot over the years. We've pressed in often that the world would have you believe that man and woman, that we're good that we are good people. In fact, if you were just to go walk through Peachtree Corners Town Center here after lunch or after, after the service at lunch and just walk up to people and say, hey, let me just ask you a fundamental question. Do you believe that people are fundamentally good or fundamentally bad? They're gonna say, oh, well, of course, there's some bad apples out there, but you know, people are good. Now, here's the problem with that. The problem with that is that goes contrary, complete opposite to what scripture teaches. Now, that's not something that we like to hear. We bristle at that. We push back against it. We are like the person in the audition room that when that's exposed about us, we don't typically go, hey, okay, I hear that and I receive it. We push back and say, no way. No way that's true. I am good. You don't know me. But when we begin to look at who God is and what his standard is, And what he has said is true about us and the gift of the law actually lays us bare and exposes it to be true. The scripture makes it very clear. There is no one who does good. There is no one righteous. There is no one who desires God. 
There is no one who pleases God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us, all of us get embarrassed in the audition room of God. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Isn't this encouraging? But we have to start there. This is the starting place. If we do not see that the law is the very thing that exposes us for who we really are and that we are not good, then we will not then land in the place that we need to land. We will live our life spiritually under false pretenses. We will live our life spiritually in a place where we go, oh, I think I'm actually achieving something that impresses God, that wins his favor, that gains his acceptance, that warrants his love. When in reality, there is nothing, there is nothing that we can do. Now, what does this have to do with Exodus 20? Well, Exodus 20 is when God first gave the law. We started there last week, but I didn't read the whole text. I wanna read the whole text this morning, read all 10 commandments. If you haven't been in or around church, you're familiar with this, you've heard of it, you know that there are 10 commandments and you might even be able to list some of them. But I wanna read them and maybe you did your, if you were here last week, maybe you did your homework, maybe you read this passage every day. And so these are now nestled into your mind and into your heart, hopefully in a way to where over the course of the week, you haven't seen them as something to be burdened by, but rather something to love if you're a follower of Christ. But this is what the text says, Exodus 20, one through 17. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Real quick, last week, this was the emphasis. That verse two is the anchor verse of the text. That God always wants us to remember our salvation, that he has done the work of rescuing and delivering us, not ourselves. We have not saved ourselves. He saved us. And what's true of Israel being led out of slavery in Egypt is a metaphor for what's true of how we've been led out of the, of the tyranny and the slavery of sin through Christ, the true and greater Moses. And so he first starts there. This is what I have done for you. Now, because I have loved you in delivering you out of slavery, I wanna express my love to you even more by giving you the law so that you see my heart and you see what the standard is. So here's the law. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands, or maybe it reads to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is with you in your gates. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. 
You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. I wanna give you four things today. The first two we'll move through fairly quickly, just quick little observations. The last two will sit in a little bit longer, but I'm gonna give you four things to, to understand about the law as we focus in. The first one is, I want you to understand that there, were, there are two tables of the law, so to speak. Now, God, we know, gave the law to Moses. Once Moses went up on the mountain, he gave the law on two tablets. We don't know if the tablets, what was on each tablet, maybe the first five commandments on one, maybe the second five on the other. We don't know how the Lord split them up. But in terms of how we read them now and how we are to understand them and how Jesus led us to understand them is we understand that there are two tables of the law. And the first table of the law is our duty to God. And the second table of the law is our duty to others. Our duty to God, that's how you can remember it. Duty to God, duty to others. And the first table is simply those first four commandments, all dealing with how are we to relate to God and serve him as the one true God. So these are the first four commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or a graven image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And you shall keep the Sabbath holy. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So those are the, the, the duty, if you will, to God. Now, second table of the law has horizontal emphasis. This is how we are to relate to one another. Honor your father and your mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness and do not covet. And this is the law that God gave the Israelites to say, you want to know what I'm about? You want to know who I am? You want to know what I care about? You want to love what I love and hate what I hate? This is it. And this is what is required of you. If you keep the law, you will prosper. So this is the two tables of the law. Secondly, how did Jesus sum up the law? So what's the summation of the law? We see this in Matthew 22. It says this. But when the Pharisees, Pharisees, by the way, are these Jews who were like the people going into the audition room that thought they were good singers. They thought they were keeping the law perfectly. They really did. So when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, which was another group of, of Jews, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, and this is one of the few times you'll see Jesus actually answer the question directly. A lot of times Jesus will answer a question with another question to expose the heart. Some, a lot of times he'll answer with a story, a parable to expose the heart. This time he's, he answers directly. It's rare for Jesus. And he just straight up tells him, all right, here it is. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now watch this. He says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, isn't it interesting that he said, this is the first and great commandment. They might be thinking, well, no, no, no. The first and great commandment is there shall be no other gods before me. You, you said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. 
And what Jesus is doing is he's taking the first table of the law and he's saying, I can sum up that first table of the law, all the duty to God, and I'm gonna shift it to help you understand that it's not just duty to God, it's love of God. To love your God with all your, with all your heart, soul, and mind. Then I'll take the whole second table of the law that is dealing with duty to others, and it's about loving others. It can be summed up in those two things. All of the law, all of the prophets, the entire moral law and everything that the prophets taught can be summed up with those two sentences. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if in some way, if in some way we could convince ourselves and be deceived to the point that we were actually doing that flawlessly, that we were holding to all 10 commandments, that we were loving the, the Lord our God with everything that we have and loving our neighbor as ourselves, and that we somehow allowed ourselves to be deceived that yes, I am doing that, Jesus presses in. So this is where I want us to camp out for a few moments in the weight of the law. The weight of the law. Watch what Jesus does. With this verse in Luke 14, verse 26, it's a verse that you may not read and think, oh, Jesus is talking about the 10 commandments. But he is, listen to what he says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now on the surface, you read that and you go, whoa, are you serious? This Jesus guy has lost his mind. He, to be his disciple, I, I have to hate my mother, father, sister, brother, and my own life. What in the world? What Jesus is doing here is he's actually pressing something in that has everything to do with the first commandment. The first commandment, not the first table of the law, but the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. What he's saying is this, this is, this is hyperbole. He's using hyperbolic language to make a point. He's saying that if that's true in your life, if there are no other gods before me, then your love for me should be so significant such that in comparison to how you love your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, and even your own life, it looks like hatred. Your love for me is so great, so profound, so life-consuming that the way you love those who are nearest and dearest to you would look like hatred in comparison. So Jesus is not saying literally you have to hate them. He's pointing us back to the first commandment. He says, you think you're keeping this? You think you're keeping this law? Let me press in. And even still, if even hearing that, you go, I don't know, I mean, I think I'm doing all right with that. Then let me give you a couple of examples. Now, these are easy targets, easy targets for us. I wanna admit that. And they're, and they're even at some level a bit surfacey, but I think at the very least they expose that, oh yeah, I really don't live out the first commandment. I'll just speak for me personally. Every Saturday, every Saturday I have to check my heart. Is the Lord my God on his throne in my heart? Why? Because there's this stupid game called football. 
this silly game that I no longer keep up with after last night. I have disowned it. It is not real anymore. It's a waste of time. Georgia fans, number one, have fun. I'm done. All right. Anyway. But seriously, if you don't know, if you don't keep up with football, I'm a Bama grad. We lost last night. It, it was horrible. And my, you know, the sun did rise this morning anyway. But every Saturday, every Saturday, how silly is it, but how true is it that I'm actually having to wrestle with there shall be no other gods before me? With something as so meaningless as fanhood. But, the, but it's there every Saturday. And almost every Saturday, I'm having to lay in bed and saying, Lord, I did it again. I cared way too much. I confess to you that Alabama football, Georgia football, Auburn football, sorry for you guys too. Uh, we, <laughs> it was on the throne. And if that doesn't get you, then I mean, gosh, another easy target. I mean, just, just start paying attention to how, how long can you go without looking at your phone? Like, it's just like, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous for me how quickly I just live here and the ways in which this little device has absolutely just owned us. Now, these are easy targets, but they expose how quickly our hearts are diverted and distracted to lesser gods. To where we say, oh my goodness, let's not even talk about mother, brother, sister, uh, what did I leave out? Father, my own life. Let's not even talk about that. I'm not even hating the devices and the teams in my life that would exalt God as the only one true God. In comparison to the love that I have for him. If that weren't enough, Jesus keeps pressing in because what he's wanting us to see is that God, yes, God gave us the law, as we talked about last week, to show us who he is and all of his grandeur and magnificence that we may love what he loves and hate what he hates. But he also gave it so that we would be able to see that even though it's the standard and even though we grow in love for the law, we are condemned by it. We can never achieve it. And all these people in Jesus' time that were actually believing that they were living it out, he just said, let me press in. Let's take this to the next level. Let's get to the heart of the law because it was never about your behavior. It was always about your heart. This is why God said to the Israelites time and time again, you can circumcise your flesh, but are you circumcising your heart? And so Jesus pressed in even more. Think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Another lawyer comes up to Jesus. These lawyers keep trying to trap Jesus. And another lawyer comes up to him and he says, hey, what's the law, right? What, same type question. And Jesus turned the question on him. He said, what would you say the law is? And he gives the right answer. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, great, go and do that and you will live. It's Jesus' little tongue-in-cheek way of saying good luck. And he begins to ponder and go, okay, well, if I'm going to live that out and actually achieve that, I, I need to justify myself by really understanding, well, who is my neighbor? Because if my neighbor are these people over here that I can love easily, then I'm good. But if it's these people over here, then I might be in trouble. So he asks the question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And the whole point of the story of the Good Samaritan is that the hero of the story 
is the enemy of the Jews. The Jews hated the Samaritans and the hero of the story is the Samaritan. And so at the end of the story, Jesus says, so which one of these was the neighbor? And he said, probably with head hung low, the Samaritan. And Jesus said, exactly. So the point of the story, who's my neighbor? Everybody, including your enemy. So he's pressing it in deeper to say, you think you're keeping the law? Are you loving every one of your enemies? The way that I love you? If that weren't enough, think about the Sermon on the Mount. What is Jesus doing on the Sermon on the Mount? If there's any way in which we begin to think, yes, I am standing righteous before God in his audition room and my moral voice is beautiful. Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount and he presses the law in. Specifically, he takes two of these laws. He takes, he takes murder and he takes adultery. And listen to what he says in Matthew 5. He says, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So he's taking this law and he says, hey, so, okay, you haven't killed anybody. Great. Have you been angry? Because remember, it's all about the heart. Have you ever defamed anyone, slandered anyone, spoken cruelly about someone? You ever said you fool or something like that to someone? Then if so, you're condemned. The law condemns you. With adultery, he says, you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And every person then at that point says, well, if that's the case, and if that's the heart of the law, and that's the intent of the law, I'm condemned. This is what Philip Yancey said in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew. He says, the worst tragedy would be to turn the Sermon on the Mount into another form of legalism. It should rather put an end to legalism. Legalism, like the Pharisees, will always fail, not because it is too strict, but because it's not strict enough. Thunderously and arguably, the, ser the Sermon on the Mount proves that before God, we all stand on level ground. Murderers and tantrum throwers, adulterers and lusters, thieves and coveters, we are all desperate. And that is, in fact, the only state appropriate to a human being who wants to know God. Having fallen from the, uh, the absolute ideal, we have nowhere to land but in the safety net of absolute grace. So, as we sit under the equalizing weight of the law, by the way, the weight of the law, I forgot to say this earlier, if you wanna sum up the weight of the law, it expounds and it exposes. Jesus expounded on the law so that we understood the heart of it, the intent of the law, and it exposes us for who we really are, those who can't keep it. And as we sit under that equalizing weight of the law, what's the result? The result of the law is despair and desperation. Despair and desperation. Yancey just said in his quote, when we begin to see who we really are, we are all desperate. 
We are all in a state of desperation as we look at the mirror of God's law and realize there is no way that I can keep this. This is how Paul said it. We, we referred to this last week, but this is how Paul said it in Romans 7. He says, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. As we said last week, the law is good. The law in and of itself is not sinful. It's good. It's the heart of God. But sin in us takes the opportunity that the law gives that exposes us and enslaves us. Paul says in that very same chapter, I didn't know what covetousness was until the law said, do not covet. And then I realized my heart is full of covetousness. So what do we do with this? Where do we land? Do we just say, okay, man, that was a bummer of a sermon and just go home? No, 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 we have to figure out where does this lead us? If we are to be a people condemned by the law, desperate for rescue, desperate for something, where do we land? Well, some of us, again, mentioned this last week, it's worth to go back in. Some of us lean towards being law abiders. Well, I just need to try harder. And so this is the land of legalism. This is the land of, I can do it. I can get it together. I can make it happen. I just have to try harder. And if I, I'm just, I'm, I'm close. I just gotta get my heart right. And so if you don't know Jesus, you have been deceived like those singers in the audition room is the thinking that we're actually good. And that at some level, I could be good enough to make God accept me, to approve of me, to look upon me with favor. This is the land of legalism. Others of us are bent to this far other extreme, which is the land of what we said is this big word called antinomianism, which is just this theological term, meaning those who abuse God's grace. We might call it licentiousness. If that's the land of legalism, this is the land of licentiousness. I have license to sin because God is just so very gracious. And that's true. Can you ever out God's grace? No. You've never done anything, thought anything, committed any sin that is beyond the reach of God's grace, ever. Grace is not a tank that you can eventually suck dry. So that's true, but God also says, don't presume upon my kindness. And that the kindness of the Lord, the grace of the Lord is to lead you to repentance. But some of us tend over here, we tend to lean this way to say, well, look, there's no way I can obey the law, I'm condemned by it, so you might as well dismiss it and just don't, don't let it play any part of my life and I'll just live over here under grace and send it up. But both of those are desperately wrong and we have to be uh, brought out of by God's goodness into this other land. And it's the land of right at the center of the glory of the cross of Jesus. Because it's only at the cross. It's the one and only place. The cross is the, the uh, glorious reality of all the legal demands, all the standards of the law that, that we can never achieve, that condemn us, have been fulfilled in Christ. And he took that perfection and took the condemnation as the perfect sacrifice, the lamb of God. And so all the ways in which we want to be legally right, he was legally right for us. And then all the ways in which we want to just live over here in irreligion, 
immune to the justice of God. God brought all of that and he said, look, my grace and my love is on display like nothing you could ever imagine at the cross. And not only are the demands of the law fulfilled in the cross, but the justice of the law is pronounced upon Jesus that he is the one condemned. And so through this reality, we actually are forgiven. Now, let me just say this. For some of us, that's where we stop and we sell ourselves short. Meaning we think that what God has done in the cross is he's done an amazing work. And so therefore I'm forgiven. And if it ends there, if it's just forgiveness, which is glorious, then we tend to believe that I am forgiven and tolerated. Forgiven and merely tolerated. Well, he's forgiven me, but man, he's always frustrated with me. He's always annoyed with me because I just can't get it together. But what the gospel preaches and teaches us over and over again is not only does he forgive us, but he adores us. He loves us more than we could ever imagine. And his grace is indeed infinite to cover a multitude of sins. It's at the cross where the justice of God and the righteousness of God and the goodness of God and the standard of the law is all fulfilled and met and glorified in Jesus. But it's not just that. The glory of the land of the cross is that it actually does something in us. When we believe upon that finished work of Jesus and trust him by faith, he indwells us. He comes and lives inside of us, just like we sang earlier, not, not but I, but through Christ in me, to where we don't live over here in the land of legalism thinking, I've got to achieve it. It's been achieved for you. And we don't live over here and saying, man, I'm covered by grace, so I'll live it up. No, he's in me. He's given me his heart. He's given me his passions, his desires. And so I am beginning to actually love what he loves and hate what he hates. I'm actually now not condemned by the law, but in love with the law. It's not something that hangs over my head anymore. It's something that I long to do because of Christ in me. It's grace and it's declared righteousness. We are through the righteousness of Jesus now seen as fully acceptable. So think about this. Go back to the audition room. You and I walk in as horrible, spiritually moral, horrible singers. We cannot carry a tune spiritually. And we open our mouth to sing for the God of the universe to say, I'm good. Be impressed with this. But what he hears is the perfect, faultless, flawless voice of Jesus, your substitute. To where when we sing now, singing being a metaphor for our lives, he accepts us. Not based on who we are and what we have done in the flesh, but based on who Jesus did, what he did in the flesh, what he did on the cross, and defeated the grave through his resurrection. And we now stand in the audition room of judgment wrapped and clothed in him and it's his voice that God hears. And when that grips us people, listen, when that grips you, you don't want to live over here in, hey, you know what? Never can live it up, live the, live the gospel, so I'm gonna live it up over here. No, no, why? Because that hurts the heart of God. 
First John chapter two, verse one says this. John, John was trying to get us to understand this when he said this. I write these things to you, brothers and sisters, so that you will not sin. Just sit on that for a second. I write this to you so that you won't sin. How many of you wake up every day and say, hey, today I am going to, through the power of Christ in me, do everything I can because I love God to not sin. Most of us, maybe if you're like me, I'm kind of halfway over here. I don't want to abuse God's grace, but I'm kind of like, you know what? It's going to happen. I'm going to sin. So yeah, grace, which is true. You can't out sin grace, but what's my heart, man? I don't want to sin. I don't want to sin. Why? Because I love God. And because I love God, I love his law and I'm not condemned by it, but I'm actually freed to obey it through the power of Christ in me. But listen to what John says next. He says, I write these things to you, brothers and sisters, so that you will not sin. But if you do, in other words, you will. But if you do, we have an advocate on our behalf. Christ Jesus, the Lord, who is the propitiation for our sins. He's the one who covers us when we fall short. So where do we stand? We stand in the glorious center of the cross. Compelled and propelled and empowered by Christ in us through the Holy Spirit to live every day, aiming to not sin. It's impossible, but that's our heart, knowing that Jesus covers every shortcoming. And we rejoice, and we rejoice, and we rejoice. So that the 10 commandments actually become a delight for us, not a duty. Father, would you indeed make your law a delight for us? because we understand and see and believe by faith that Jesus has set us free from the condemnation of the law, that we may actually obey it through your power within us. Give us your heart, O oh God, that we indeed would love what you love and hate what you hate. Father, I, I pray for the ones who are here, who are listening, who are really wrestling with whether this faith in Christ thing is real. Lord, I pray that you would draw them out of either of those two extremes that they may be in. The land of legalism or the land of license, Lord, would you draw them unto yourself and may they see the beauty of the cross. And for the believer, those who have believed upon you, who still find themselves living in those two spaces, would you draw them back to the glorious center of the finished work of Jesus and ignite within them a passion to obey you because they love you. Thank you that you are a loving law giver. We rejoice in you for your glory in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing together. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.